0: Okay, we are going on a journey this term looking at the ecosystem of God's kingdom. So we've been pushing into a season of prayer and we're going to continue to weave that into everything we do. But this term we're particularly looking at what what do we mean and what do we understand by God's kingdom. And I want to start with something that caught my attention in Luton Airport Woo! this summer. We have the first. Has anyone come across this book, Think Like a Monk? Train your mind. Brilliant. In that, I haven't. So I'm pleased someone has. Train your mind for peace and purpose every day. So, this really caught my attention because in the 80s and 90s and probably the 90s, this book would not be on a bestseller non-fiction list in an airport. It, would, it shows that we're kind of shifting culturally. What was probably happening behind the scenes is now kind of more and more becoming popularized. So, this isn't a comment on the book itself. Because I haven't read it and I really have this thing of reading a book before I comment on it. It's more what the book represents. So I'm just going to read it right up read its for those who haven't heard it from Amazon. This, In this inspiring and empowering book. Do you know what? <laughs> the surname's Shetty. Which I find just a bit complex every time I repeat it. So I'm just going to make up another surname. Do you mind? So that I don't tr- almost laugh every time to honor him, what name should we come up with? Jay. Just call him Jay. First name, like with your bank manager. Okay. In this inspiring and empowering book, Jay draws on his time as monk in the Vedic tradition to show us how we can clear the roadblocks to our potential and power. Drawing on ancient wisdom and his own rich experiences in the ashram, Think Like a Monk reveals how to overcome negative thoughts and habits and access the calm and purpose that lie within us all. The lessons monks learn are profound but often abstract. Jay transforms them into advice and exercises we can all apply to reduce stress, improve focus, improve relationships, identify our hidden abilities, increase self-discipline, and give the gifts we find in ourselves to the world, Jay proves that everyone can and should think like a monk. So that is the write-up in Amazon on a book which is a bestseller. So as I said, I'm not going to comment on the book, but I'm commenting on the fact that this book is now something that publishers think there is enough market for people to buy, because that's why books end up on sale it's because there's enough consumers who are interested in buying it and I've, I've sort of talked about this before but there's this kind of pendulum swing in how we find the good life so humans are always trying to find the good life the place of human flourishing and it feels like there's this cultural pen, pendulum swing between rigorous self-discipline you might call it religion or practices or spirit spiritual kind of habits to authentic self-expression, I'm going to get in touch with my real feelings and emotions and going to express them almost without restraint. So this kind of pendulum swing—it's all the way through history. In the ancient world, you can see it through the in the first century through the religious strictness of Judaism and the kind of flagrant um, self-indulgence, along with a real self self-indulgence of the the spirit and desires and self-discipline of the body in Greco-Roman paganism. So you have this kind of um, kind of movement. And um, recently, sort of in the last two or three hundred years, in response to kind of urbanization and mechanization, and everyone's kind of a worker in a factory and an economic man, kind of economic human kind of thing, there was this sort of romantic movement away from that. I find transcendence or something in nature. I, I want to express who I really am and I want to feel connected. So there's this sort of, I mean, it's very crude, but it's heart and head, it's intuition and reason. It's that kind of split. And we culturally move from one to the other as humans to try and find the way to the good life, to human flourishing. And I guess in the 80s and 90s and noughties, it was really about you do you and construct a worldview around yourself post-modernity. You tell your story and I'll tell mine. And now we're kind of moving away from that because we've hit a kind of level of cultural chaos and unhealth, and chronic poor mental health, and chronic anxiety, and all sort of health problems, that 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 whatever that is, is clearly not leading to life and human flourishing. So there's this sort of reaction against it, and we've got to be really careful, this is just an aside in the church, the church tends to kind of both work with, prophetically anticipate, but also sometimes collude with where the world's going, so the church is very consumerist, in that it was about you do you you find your own way with Jesus in the 80s 90s 90s and now it's much more about habits practices discipline so that you can feel it you can feel this cultural change in the church so I just want to I'm going I'm to honour both those things because I think they're both image bearing ways that God has made us to be I'm honour I'm not dishonouring them I'm just going to honour the way we access the good life but I am going to say let's let's really resist the religious spirit coming into the church let's just really resist that unless you're ticking these boxes, you're not really following Jesus because it's happening. It's going to happen. We need to be absolutely aware that he came to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And we stand bro- broken on that rock every single day. That's the thing we build our life on. and We come to that. That is the good news. That's the gospel. But anyway, so there's this big pendulum swing. So this kind of book is showing in popular culture actually that that kind of authentic self-expression you do you is not quite working so we want we need something so maybe some external disciplines or internal habits something to just try and control the chaos of the human condition to enable me to live an effective life and I'm a bit of a suck of these and it sounds like you know you read the book but 80 habits to win the day before 8am who loves those I mean, they just make you feel so powerful until you have a conversation with another human and realize you don't really love your neighbor as yourself. So uh, it didn't really work, but you felt powerful because you did some things before you saw another human. The gospel is we get to love another human as ourselves. That dividing wall of hostility with anyone is broken and we're never good news until we can love that person as ourselves. So I love that stuff. I also want to honor authentic self-expression. I believe we're created as image bearers to, to be authentic, whole, integrated humans. I believe we're called to love God, in a, it, it, you know, bottom line, with our heart and with our mind. But the way to human flourishing isn't through self-actualisation, self-discipline, self-focus. That's all got to go, and we're going to find there's another way of life that will actually lead to life and human flourishing. So there's something sharp about what this guy, this man is picking up on and what this movement's picking up on is in some ways they, I don't know what the kind of language they would use because their, his heritage is more connecting with Hinduism in the practices. But he's he's kind of suggesting that there's something wrong with the world and the, authentic, the movement of self-expression hasn't really healed it or responds it. He's assuming people need peace because they haven't got it. They need purpose because they haven't got it. They need discipline because they haven't got it. And they need to bring themselves to the world because they're not. You, that wouldn't be selling if there wasn't that sense of gap. The gap between what we want, how we live, we want our lives to feel peaceful, calm, purposeful, contributing to human flourishing, making the world a better place. And yet there's a gap between the actual reality of our actual experience. These books are massive bestsellers in these movements because they're kind of, they're kind of meeting, they're trying to meet that need. They're trying to say, I acknowledge there's a need there. And this is what I'm going to bring to this conversation. So we see a rise. Um, and again, there's so much goodness in all of this. I'm not, I'm not dishonouring it. I'm just trying to say what really is actually going to work. Because I'm a pragmatist. Like, I want it to actually work. I want the outcome to actually be human flourishing. But you'll see the rise in neo-stoicism, which is uh, even things like practices, psychological practices like CBT, Popularity of martial arts, which is a, a real emphasis on on self discipline, meditation practices, the rise of militant Islam—all of these, even emphasising resilience in the school curriculum—are all about let's just get the body under control and let's just lead a disciplined life, and maybe that will work. And that's the move. That's what's happening in the world because the other thing doesn't seem like it's going to work, and of course there'll be a counter attack against that. Um, already there are people who, you know. Maybe comment comedically on yoga, for example. Um, so the point is, these people are calling out the gap between life as it actually is and life as we want it to be. In fact, you might say that the title for that book could be Change the Way You Think About Reality for Life and Human Flourishing are Here. And actually, that, isn't, that is exactly the same message that was being said in first century Judaism and Greco-Roman culture which we're going to get to now. For example, the Roman Empire believed that Caesar was Lord and Saviour and was heralding the gospel, the good news of Pax Romana, that everyone could enjoy peace and joy under the the restoration and the lordship and the dominion of the emperor. And so what's fascinating as we're looking at the ecosystem of God's kingdom as we come to Matthew 4:17, the very first sermon in the New Testament that we hear God speaks, preaches, Jesus preaches, sorry, is seven words in the, in the Greek, and it is repent for the kingdom of the heavens. That was a, a respectful euphemism for God, for Jewish readers and listeners, is here. Change the way you think about reality because God, good governance has broken through. So, in some ways, Jesus is saying there are multiple claims to the good life and human flourishing, and I'm bringing mine to the table. Boom. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. Repent is a change of mind that is so radical it actually changed the way we believe and actually our entire life. We're walking in one direction and we see something clearly, say we're stealing. And we suddenly have a change of re- uh, mindset about reality and we realize God's a provider. We can, we're can mar- we designed to be generous. We can abundant and give. So we stop stealing. And in Ephesians, Paul says, we actually start to work hard so we can give away. That's, that's repentance. It's embodied. It is never an intellectual ascent. It is an embodied change of life. We don't have to think, how am I going to change my behavior? We just behave differently because we believe different things about reality. So he's saying, change everything about you because the kingdom of God is here. So we, Bill is going to do a really good job at the end of each month. He's doing three parts, Bill drew on what the kingdom is for those first listeners. What did they hear and what did Jesus mean by that? And he's going to go into the cultural context and and the biblical context. And I don't have enough time to go here, but I'm just going to touch on one thing. Um, All the time we are making massive kind of neurological leaps to understand context all the time. So if I say something like once upon a time, some of you might know exactly what I'm talking about and have multiple stories in your head that start with once upon a time. Some of you will not have any idea what that means. You might hear in a galaxy... For you... You know how to finish the sentence because you have got an imagination that's our shared cultural understanding of something. Which means you can finish the sentence, not only that, you can have multiple storylines and characters and people in your head. And we even saw that in the interview with Micah. So a Hebrew Bible professor, Steve Dempston, recently said, if you come to a sentence like, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. It's like hearing that. It's like reading the third book of the trilogy of Lord of the Rings and not having any idea of the first two or even The Hobbit or even, dare I say, and this is the the bit in me, it's on my pile of books to read when I get to that genre, fantasy fiction, The Silmarillion, which is actually apparently the backstory to The Hobbit. And I love it. There's always a few who nod at that. There's a few like, yep, you're on it. You're on it. You know about Silmarillion. So, so I'm going to go there and read that. So when we hear that, there is a massive backstory. You cannot come to three quarters of the way through the set of literary texts who come to call the Bible and claim to understand it if we don't understand the first three quarters. It's absolutely critical that we understand that Jesus came in three quarters of the way through a narrative. We understandably start with the Gospels, and it's right, we do. But we need to understand we, there's a context. It's a bit like what happened in lockdown when uh, we didn't know anything about Marvel. But obviously lockdown's useful, some things. So as a, as a family, we went through all of Marvel. And if any of you, does any of you know Infinity War or Endgame, how that comes in the Marvel story? Most of you don't. I wouldn't have either. Yeah. Thanks, Tim. There's always Tim. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, they are like the intense build-up to this long and complicated collection of different characters. So we basically invited Chris's sister over in lockdown. It was like dark. It was like February or something. And we were like huddling. What was it? A bubble or a huddle or something. And she sat through Infinity War and Endgame. She sat through Endgame. Like the, the climax of the entire thing without having a clue about anyone or any of the characters. And she was like, kind of pleased I'm here. Not really sure. Yeah. And everyone had to make notes and explain who everyone was. That is what we're doing when we're reading the New Testament. There is a massive backstory. And Bill's going to help us a bit with that in terms of the kingdom of God. I'm just going to do a few things here to help us understand. So when Matthew begins his, his story about Jesus, his his kind of account, which is in the the genre of biography for Greco-Roman culture, okay, it's exactly how they wrote stories, except there are some really exciting differences. Sorry, not stories, biographies. Um, He starts with this word, geneosis, and that is exactly what the beginning of Genesis is. It's exactly that, if you're looking at the Greek version of Genesis. The first book in the Bible, so it's like the first book and the first book. So you see they have similarities. The Spirit of God is hovering over the formless and void, empty womb of the uncreated, unformed state. And with ten royal words, God, Yahweh, creates an entire cosmos into being culminating in the creation of humanity to rule and reign on his behalf. And then you see in this second origin story, this new creation narrative, the spirit of God hovers over a teenage peasant girl whose womb is formless and void and speaks in new creation, fully human and fully divine. Jesus, who will inaugurate new creation, who will be the king that fulfills what the old creation were, through humanity's failure was unable to fulfil. So you see Matthew is doing something and he's doing that all the way through. And when we, we can we go to the next one, we look at the structure of Matthew, it's carefully curated. There is authorial intention in the Gospels. They're all trying to do different things for different people. This is a shout-out for Bible Book Club. We're actually going to put in Matthew in the next Bible Book Club. It's hosted at the Fowler's House, first Saturday every month. Everyone's free to join. And if you can't be there, you can kind of be on the WhatsApp. And it's just literally reading the book again and again and again, or once, if that's all you can do. And and every Saturday, having a little time when you can talk it through. So there is a, a, there is a design in Matthew, but if you look at how this scholar's organised the design, everyone recognises there are five literary um, kind of sections with with teachings and miracles, and they are saying Jesus is the new Moses. He is the new Torah. He's speaking in the revelation of God. In fact, he's fulfilling that original design to love God and love our neighbours ourselves. And but can you see it's all about the kingdom? the ecosystem of God's kingdom. We're not trying to find an agenda in Matthew. The agenda comes out of Matthew. This is God's agenda, something about the kingdom. He speaks about it in Matthew over 40 times. So what we're trying to do when we go to the Bible is not go, what do we want it to say to us on our terms? We're crossing a cultural, -cultural, cross-cultural kind of bridge and we're trying to listen to the original authors on their own terms and then bring it back to us today. The theme of the kingdom, some sort of rule or reign of some sort of king is absolutely critical to understanding the Gospel of Matthew. So it isn't a surprise that that first sermon that Jesus speaks summed up into seven words is repent for the kingdom of God is here. And you see that royalty is all the way through that Genesis 1 creation narrative. It's royal decrees. The king is sort of the go- king of the cosmos. You like, let there be Elohim, sorry, let there be, let there be, let there be. And it's like he just speaks and things happen. That is a king narrative. It's also a temple narrative. So in the ancient world, you had local deities, um, over local areas and they had their temples and they had their idol statues and the idol statues weren't The gods, but they were a way that you could worship and sacrifice and, and, and kind of make amends for stuff and thank the gods. And so when you broke the statue, you didn't break the god, but you would, you would, um, incite their anger because you've broken their image. So what happens in Genesis one is a direct critique of ancient Near Eastern creation narratives with its own, if I, I believe a real understanding of the way the world really is, which is the entire temple, the entire cosmos is Yahweh's temple. And humanity are his idol statues. We are designed to bear and represent him in a way that shows the world what God is like. And if you break us, you break the image of God because we represent him. That's why it's sacred space. Humanity is sacred space because Yahweh will not stop to exist when we are broken But Yahweh won't be represented in the way he's designed to be. That's why we're not designed to worship gods, because that's too small for us. The same word, Selem, is image idol in the deities with Selem idols in the statues. And that's what humanity is in Genesis 1. We are image bearers of God. So he's the king of kings. And then he clearly creates us to rule and reign as an image. He clearly creates humanity to rule and reign over all creation in such a way that everything flourishes under our care. So this idea of ruling, of reigning, of kingdom is absolutely integral to Genesis 1 and then what we're seeing, this theme in Matthew and actually all the Gospels. So what I want to do now is try and get a change of mindset, a reversal back to that original understanding of rule and reign. Because what happened in Genesis 3 was we decided to rule and reign in our own wisdom and understanding. And something happened, a corruption happened at the heart of the human condition, which means that all our understanding of leadership became corrupted. And I like to distinguish, it's not helpful and it's not that clear, but I like to distinguish from the idea of kingdom, and empire. So what I'm going to do is ask you now to throw out some words about what you think empire means. When you hear that word, what do you think in terms of leadership? Dominance, brilliant. Control, dictatorships. Ooh, deep. I love it. Was that you? extractive that's good subjugation (laughs) yeah so the but which way what what's the brilliant taking so it's taking so some sort of power where the power is taking what they can from what where there's someone else who presumably has less power and accumulating yeah anything else Control, yep. Yep. Yeah, that's that's a really good way of putting it. It's it's, it's non relational. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yes. Yeah, it's interesting they've used that used that name. So essentially when we hear words like rule and reign, we can actually and rule and reign over creation, we can get uncomfortable. Because we're projecting back the corrupt understanding of ruling and reigning. And what the gospel does, the good news of Jesus does, is it actually redefines or redecovers that original, universal, deeper understanding which resonates with all of us about what true leadership is. When God created humanity in his image and authorised them to minister, he didn't take them back. He didn't micromanage. He didn't exploit. It was an authentic power sharing. He authentically and with integrity released humanity to rule and reign. So he is demonstrating to us what true leadership is. It's power sharing, it's wealth sharing, it's, it's releasing stas- status and prestige so that other people will be raised up. It's servant-hearted leadership in the climax of the biblical narrative. Leadership is Christ crucified. That is actually a true and real understanding of kingdom, a real and true understanding of leadership and reigning. And if any of us in any position of power are not doing that... We, we, we need to repent if we go back because the kingdom of God, the way God actually wants to rule and reign and lead, has come near in the person of Jesus. He's actually redefining, rewiring our neurology of what leadership is. It looks like self-sacrifice. It looks like if you have power, according to the wisdom of the Proverbs, do whatever you can in your power to help someone do good. It looks like alleviating suffering. It looks like understanding that power is just context. And when context changes, so does power and vulnerability. We've never received, we've never got anything that we didn't freely receive. And as we freely receive, we freely give. So Bill's going to go more into the details of what the Jewish audience would have understood by kingdom and what Jesus meant. But I'm trying to just break open this idea that we have a lot of false narratives about what leadership is in our heads. And I'm trying to recover what did God actually mean when he established humanity to rule and reign. Because there's something about what Jesus knows about humanity that if he just does what they wanted him to do, which is overthrow Rome and re-establish an independent nation-state, Judah, Judea, Israel. What would happen is the oppressed would become the oppressor. Because as uh, the, political, the persecuted political commentator famously said, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the line of good and evil runs through every human heart. And he found that in a Russian equivalent of a concentration camp, he's like, there's something in me that needs a fundamental change. If when I'm not released, I don't just become an oppressor too. It's in all of us. C.S. Lewis calls it when he talks about Aslan's death in Narnia, there's a deeper magic. There's a deeper magic for us. There's a, There's a a past and a future that's more real than our present. Which looks like a person. And that's why I want to come away from that pendulum swing of principles to self-expression. That's never, because that's always the self which needs restoration. We need to come away from that. And we need to access the person of Jesus Christ. The kingdom is in the king. He is the kingdom. When we come into him and through him, into his death and resurrection, we do enter into life and human flourishing. I talked about this last week and heard it recently. You know, I might die for someone. And that might alleviate their suffering and give them a bit of a longer life. And it is heroic. I don't know if I have the courage to do that. But when Jesus died for humanity, he atoned for something. He changed something. The nature of humanity changed. We became clean. We became pure. We became able to fully recover our humanity, which is to rule and reign in God's way, in a way that everyone and everything flourishes under our care. He recovered true humanity. His death and resurrection does something that nothing and no one else can do for us. And it did deliver historical change. We are, there's a book written a long time ago now, 12 year, 2012, called The End of Power. And in some ways, grace for the abuse of power has just run out culturally. It's just run out. And that is the work of God, because it's not kingdom. It's just not kingdom, Leaders are called to much higher standards. In fact, they're called to the standards of Christ crucified, whether people believe in Jesus or not. They're called to be servant leaders. They're called only to leadership if everyone flourishes. They're called only to leadership if their power will be the power to do good for other people. It's extraordinary, isn't it, how the Spirit's just doing that. He's just doing that in the world. So we look back at Jay, Jay's book. You know is he right? If we follow his ancient his connection with ancient Hindu practices will we enter into the peace and purpose and life that we want? Well I think he both calls out the problem but doesn't have the solution. He calls out the problem of the gap between the real and the ideal but he doesn't have the solution of Christ crucified. Because we don't live by principles or self-actualisation. We actually live by faith in the Son of God who died for us and made a way for us. So whilst the fruit of character in our new creation life will be full authenticity and integrity, we will be completely integrated beings and live out of our heart and mind. We will be marked by self-control. Those two things aren't the gateways to the good life. He He is the gateway to human flourishing. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is here. He's saying nothing less than change what you think is actually real about the the way the world actually is. As a human, I'm showing you what it is to be human. What true normal humanity is. If you want to know what that plumb line is, read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Do the cross-cultural work because it's not written in English now. But it is the closest we get to understanding what normal humanity looks like. He is showing us what it actually means to rule and reign as God's image-bearing representative. And the most poignant moment of that is his enthronement, his, his raising up. All the gospel writers know and all the commentators know that when he's crowned with a crown of thorns, he's saying this is what leadership looks like. When his robe is taken off him and torn, sorry, sorry it's not torn, it's divided up, that's what leadership looks like. It looks like going first, being vulnerable, understanding that we, w- we move in through the sufferings of Christ to the resurrection and there is no other way. We lay down our lives for those in our care. So, all of us here are leaders. We have a church full of leaders. I want you to think of the people you're leading. It could be in your workplace, it could be in your family. It could be people you're praying for and have a heart for and you're, in a sense, leading in prayer. Where it's hurting, where it's painful, where it's costly, that is true leadership. That is exactly the design. There is no other way to lead anyone into the promised land, but through the way Jesus led us into the promised land. So that weak area, that area like, oh, I just wish that would go away. I wish that would change. I wish if that was in fine, then my life would be fine. I think it's the very area he's catching our attention, showing us what leadership looks like. It's through a person, not a principle. And the person's name is Jesus. So people love different aspects of the kingdom. Some people love love, some people love joy, justice, peace. I love all of that. But I think if I had to sum up the thing that gets me the most excited, it's faith. We're called to a life of faith. It's very simple. We hear God tell us to do something and we do it embodied in our lives. That's it. It's intimacy, it's partnership. It's saying no to the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is you reign in your own wisdom. You redefine good and evil on your own terms. Moving past that to the tree of life where you go, Jesus, what are you saying to me? And I'll do it. It's scary. It's risky. It's vulnerable. It's power sharing. It's excruciating. But that is the way to life. There is no other way to life and human flourishing. So what I want to do now is to come into land transactionally and put this into practice now for us. What do we feel God is saying to us as a community? When he says to just later on, Matthew 6, seek first God's kingdom. I used to think, because I was colluding with radical individualism, it was just to me. What do I need to do? It was my mantra for my entire life. What I need to do, seek first God's kingdom, that provision will come to me. I recently realised he's not saying it to a community of people. He's saying it to all the people on the Sermon of the Mount. All of you together, you seek first my kingdom. And abundance will follow you because I'm your loving Heavenly Father. Everything you need will come in your wake, but you can tend to seek first my kingdom. So I know we have kingdom dreams. I know we have kingdom dreams here. And what I want us to do is prophesy over each other, encourage each other in those kingdom dreams. Two things. Firstly, if a kingdom dream is not impossible, it's not from the king. Secondly, if there is not one small step you can take today, it's not from the king. Do you remember it's the mustard seed in Jesus' micro parable that Chris referenced last week, it's the mustard seed that becomes the large tree. It isn't half a tree that becomes a full tree. It's the mustard seed of faith. My mustard seed, my dream, is I want to see the narrative in the West turned from kind of, we don't really think God exists, we're not really sure, to just in the public domain, just a clear, simple understanding of what it actually means to follow Jesus. So people actually know what the options are and they're free to choose. That's an impossible dream. But my seeds, every day I know the little thing he's telling me to do and who to partner with. To just take my little step off that first easy rung on that ladder of that impossible dream. For a fundamental mindset change in the West about what's actually real. There's this beautiful chapter that God's given us as a community, Isaiah 58 Um David Judson, actually you kind of brought that to Chris and we'd already been remembering it, talks about the kind of fasting that he's chosen isn't the ones where we fast and then oppress our workers. Read it all, it's really powerful about rebuking religious practices if we don't love our neighbours ourselves. I'm going to verse five. Is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen? I feel that's this for us. We feel this is a prophetic word for our community. So when we're saying repent for the kingdom of God is here, we think, okay, what is God saying to us? It isn't principles or practices for anyone else. It's what does he say to us? What is the spirit saying to us? And one of the things he said to us over the years is some beautiful verses from Isaiah 58 as a community. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? I.e., act of self-denial. Only a day for people to humble themselves. Is that a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like a dawn. Your healing will quickly appear. Sounds like human flourishing to me sounds like this is the gateway to human flourishing. When we deny ourselves, partner with him, that is the gate to human flourishing. Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. You will call and God will answer you. He will hear your suffering. He hears our suffering when we hear the suffering of others. It's the Torah. It's it's love your neighbor as yourself. It's the mutuality, the brother and sisterhood of humanity. When we hear suffering, he hears ours. Because he loves covenant and he loves people and he's authorized us to minister. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with pointing finger, with malicious talk, if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, your light will rise in the darkness. This is a new creation narrative. The first let there be light in the darkness. He's saying there's a new humanity that will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always, ever struggled for guidance ever struggled with what's the next step what God's got for my life he will satisfy your needs strengthen your frame and guide you always you'll never have an issue with guidance if you hear the cries of other people and this is it because God is growing in us a garden if you heard Chris's talk last week please listen to it because this is the imagery we've been given again and again and again by us by the membership he God is speaking to us and he's saying I'm growing in you a garden And he's saying, you will be, this is the crux of Isaiah 58, 10, a new Eden, a new creation narrative. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. And Rebecca had that beautiful image of the river of life flowing out of the temple where everything's alive. Your people will raise up old foundations. You'll be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dellings. If you honour the Sabbath, call the Sabbath day a delight. The Lord's day honourable, and not go your own way or do as you please, you will find joy in the Lord. You'll ride in triumph on the heights of the land. You'll feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. We believe and we're convinced that God has created good works to advance in advance for every believer. There are 2.6 billion believers in the world. Imagine if everyone was fully mobilised we'd be bringing heaven on earth. The issue isn't the world, it's never the world. We've been given everything we need for life and godliness. It's us being fully mobilised. Not through coercive, controlling dominion leadership, but through self-sacrificial, I'm going to do my yes today in that small step of nurturing that seed to the mustard seed of the kingdom which covers and fills the whole earth. And what we want to do is here... and and speak over each other's dreams because there are some crises in the world, aren't there? And because of clickbait and the way news works, we know about the crises every single day, every hour of the day. I'm just going to call some out. There's a housing crisis, a climate crisis, an education crisis, a cost of living crisis, a human trafficking crisis, a mental health crisis. Those are just some. Some. And what happens is, what we need to do, is we don't need to think like a monk. We don't need to go, do you know what, it's just too much and just get my 80 habits in before breakfast and get through the day. We can go, God, what's the dream you've put in me? What's the seed you've put in me? The two things. And who are my people? Because no one's ever called to do anything on their own. As I said before, if we're not doing it with anyone, we're not good news to anyone. The essential gift of the gospel is we're actually reconciled to love someone else as we love ourselves just one other human if we can't do that we're not good news we're just the same as everyone else but if we can partner with people and it may be people of faith it may be image bearers who have God's heart across the world God does what he likes we just get to partner with him in the adventure we have to find our people so what I'd love us to do around our tables now and we're going to come into land and Alice is going to come up and help in terms of any prophetic words or sense God is doing. It's just what is your dream? What's the mustard seed of faith God's given you? What's the thing you want to see changed? I love Sam's question for Micah in the next 10 years. And who are the people? Who are the people God's giving you? And And I would say God is not Unkind. He's not cruel. He doesn't give us a dream and then give us no resources. He gives us five, ten, thousand, fifteen thousand hungry people. And he just waits for the boy with, who has the faith with the five loaves and two fish. And that's all he needs. He just needs the yes of the person who already knows what's in their hand. You see that theme. I've talked about it before. What's in your hand all the way through scripture. What's the thing you have already today? And you just take that step. So if we get into groups around the table, I know the children, young people are going to come back in, but I really want, this is something we're doing for the long haul. We're building people who are living quite literally the kingdom dream and stewarding it into fruitful reality. I know... There is legacy in my family of people who've done that in the past and have actually changed the course of history. I know it's possible because if we inherit it. There is so much we've inherited because people in the past have just done things unseen, invisible, never known, but God knows. And they've just changed trajectories so that I've experienced and I have an inheritance and a legacy. So, those are the two questions. What is the dream God's put on your heart? Who are your people? And with that dream, it has two sides. So I'm going to ask you that again, so you remember, if it's a kingdom dream, it must be impossible. And there is always a small step. That's it. That's all he's asking. That's faith, is I'm going to do that. So I'm going to pray now, and then I want us to start to activate this. Lord, thank you that one of the things you've put on my heart is to mobilize people into action. That's a phrase in my original Zion given to people by d- people who didn't know me. I just love to see everyone fully activated and mobilized. I love every member ministry. I love the fact that you always choose a small group of people. And they're that they, that are completely 100% yes, and, and they, you do something through them. And we just want to honour that we are one small part of the church in Bristol and we honour the activation of every believer in this city. We break any independence, we break anything that suggests we're different, we're in, we're in one river and it's the river of the Holy Spirit. So we honour what everyone else is doing and we also take fully responsible, full responsibility for the kingdom dreams you put in us here to nurture and, and, and grow and look after. So I ask for, for revelation now, for clarity as we share what is our kingdom dream and what is the small step that you have for us to start moving by faith into it. And we believe you, Lord. You say the the sin of the whole world is unbelief in me. It's not not actually how we believe or anything like that. It's just what we actually believe is true. We believe you that if we do this, this is the way to life and human flourishing. This is the way to the good life. It's through you. It's through a person. And, we, and we, we end by just honouring and glorifying the person and the body of Jesus through whom life is possible. Abundant life is accessible. We honour you and we want to say yes to that invitation, to an adventure that will last a lifetime and leave a legacy. Amen.
1: All right, so there were a couple of things that were coming up um, as you go into your groups. Uh, one was during worship. Um, I was really feeling that um, there was a real thirst in some of us. Maybe after the summer there's um, been um, a lot of outpouring into your families or just in life's busyness. And it was a reminder of worship. I don't know when our next session of like a full worship session is coming up, but we can find out um but that is like your doctor's appointment you cannot miss that you cannot compromise on it it's not a negotiable you need to go because that's the place where you're going to get restocked and refilled and there was just a real sense of like oh I feel quite strung out so worship is I don't know if you felt it you sensed it as we were worshiping earlier um there was it was a little refreshing time and that's really needed among us. So if that's not you as well, if you're actually feeling quite good, come and worship on behalf of someone else who might not be able to manage it for whatever reason. Um, so worship on beh- behalf of the community. So that was one thing. And then the other thing was just as Alice was um, giving us our sort of our, our um, commissioning us to, to think about um, what God-sized dreams we have, um, that maybe there are some of us who sort of think, oh, Actually, again, it's this feeling of like a bit of a slump. I don't know what my god-sized dream is. I I sort of I don't yet have all the beliefs that I need to go there. It actually feels heavy. It feels a bit bit intimidating, perhaps, and maybe a sort of sense of like bit uh, uselessness almost. That I just don't know what my dream is. So, in your times, if that's you, um, two things: Uh, one was, um, just to know that. So when, when Alice is talking about the sacrifice of Christ and how actually to, to see these God-sized dreams fulfilled, there's, it it requires a sacrifice. A reminder that the sacrifice of Jesus was his delight. Even in the garden when he said, Father, if if there's any way possible for, for this cup to be taken away from me, his delight was to say, not my will, but yours. It was fully worth it for him in the same way that with our children, like having a ch- child is such a sacrifice, but you do it and it's a delight. There's such a delight in it and it is an inexplicable thing. That is the, the kind of sacrifice that Jesus made for us. So if there's that feeling of heaviness in the prospects of the sacrifice of that that will be required in the dream, um, then ask God, repent of, of, um, following like, the wrong line of inquiry on what sacrifice really means. Ask him to show you the beauty and the delight in the sacrifice that would be required in that dream. And if you are in that space where you can't, you know, you, you're just not quite there in engaging with what kind of dream you might be having, I would love it if, um, if that's what we can pray for. So if you can just confess that to, to each other. And if we can pray prophetically for the dream to be released and for our beliefs to, um, to just be made transparent to us. So we know what beliefs are we, we carrying that are totally getting in the way of us being empowered and released into the dreams and visions that God, God has for us. Um, so there's a sort of sense of, in summary, if it's feeling heavy and if it's feeling like you're beset by obstacles, let's ask God the questions we need to ask, let's ask God the beliefs that we need to fling off and the beliefs we need to receive in order to enter into the beauty and the grace and the ease of the sacrifice that, uh, of, of that dream and vision. Because um, even though it might be hard, even though a dream doesn't come to pass without much business and painful effort, whatever it says in, in Ecclesiastes, there is. it's worth it. And I think we know that deep down inside of us. So can we encourage, like really, really empower each other with the courage that we need to discover the dream?